We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Dimitri Buras of TVBS News. Hey, good to be here. And also by Donovan Smith from the Taiwan News in Taichung. And great to be back. Tonight we'll be discussing another deadly construction site-related accident. Lawmakers passing a law to establish a Ministry of the Environment. Starlux Airlines making headlines for delays and postponed flights, as well as a cockpit photograph and a survey by the Health Promotion Administration showing that university students are now drinking less alcohol. But we'll begin with some of the latest election news and KMT chairman Eric Jew either accidentally letting slip or deliberately confirming, depending on what media outlet you seem to be reading, that his party will be announcing its presidential candidate for next year's election next week. Now, the statement or passing miscomment comes amid ongoing speculation as to whether the KMT will opt to pick either new Taipei city mayor Ho Yo-e or Honhai founder Terry Guo. Now, the KMT chairman is not saying whether he plans to hold talks with either of the potential candidates prior to next week's announcement, but yesterday, on Thursday, he did say that he remains in close contact with both of them. Now, Jew is also stressing that he firmly believes the KMT will unite behind the party's 2024 presidential candidate, regardless of whether Ho or Guo are chosen. Now, Ho has been mostly quiet on his possible nomination, but earlier this week, he did tell members of the new Taipei City Council during a hearing that he opposes Beijing's one-country, two-systems formula and Taiwan independence. While Guo has been rather vocal about his plans to seek the party's 2024 candidacy and has been touring the island to drum up support for his nomination. And the focus of that tour has been his rather large war of words with the government concerning coronavirus vaccine procurement. Now, speaking after meeting with several KMT lawmakers on Monday of this week at an event organised by United Microelectronics Honorary Vice Chairman John Schwinn, Guo told reporters that he believes the vaccine issue is of a major concern to lawmakers and the public. Now, Guo has accused the government of scuttling a deal to purchase Pfizer-BioNTech coronavirus vaccines in early 2021 because of its insistence on being called the Independent Government of Taiwan in the public announcement of that purchase. Guo has also been claiming that former Presidential Office Secretary-General David Lee had been told by President Tsai Ing-wen to tell him him being Guo, that there was no need for him to buy any vaccine doses. Now, the Centers for Disease Control and the Presidential Office are both adamantly denied those charges. And while the government has also said that it informed Guo that as a private individual he was unable to purchase vaccines, well, that's something that the Honhai founder and possible presidential candidate has persistently denied. Oh, and Guo also this week dismissed talk of his possibly opting to run as an independent candidate next year. So, Donovan, of course, Eric Jew has finally said something, whether by default or by reasonable meaning and possible... Telling, you know, making a real statement about it this week. And they've got Ho or Guo, it looks like. And of course, they're taking very different moves towards possibly being the candidate. Yeah, um, I think Eric Jews waited a, a bit too long because t- what's happened is, is Terry Guo has actually done a fairly good job now of building support. He's been traveling the country, he's been giving uh, policy speeches in various forums and, and, and settings. He ha- he's had some major rallies which were fairly well attended. Although he stumbled a bit on his first rally, he was uh, basically mute for about two minutes. But then he warmed up, and you know, while he was a bit wooden, he was 
better than you might expect for a very first time holding a major political rally. Um, but what's happening is is that he is rallying a, a, a fair number of people within the party because what he's trying to do is that Eric Jew will choose the they're, – they're not having a primary – and Eric Jew will choose the final candidate. And, but he says that he's consulting with the heads of local governments, the city and, count, you know, the city and county mayors and, and commissioners, um, and uh, party lawmakers. And, and he's consulting with them. He's consulting with KMT members and also with the public. And he claims he's looking at, quote, scientific data. Uh, what that means, presumably, that's polling. Now, uh, what's happened is that Terry Guo has started to actually build a, a, a following within those people who Eric Ju claims to be uh, getting advice and consulting with. Um, so what's happening is there's now fears within the KMT that the party will be split no matter which candidate he chooses. Now, Ho Yui has finally tipped his hand on at least some of what he views on cross-strait policies, which is definitely a tip-off that he is considering running. Now, one of the things that a lot of people within the KMT, particularly in the deep blue end of the spectrum, were concerned about is that Hoyui would be a Li Denghui 2.0, or a secret independence advocate. And, you know, as, as they say, blue, blue skin and green bones is the phrase that they, they use to, to express their worries about him. Now, he's come out over the last week and made it very clear that he does not support Taiwan independence. And I think the timing of this is that now he's starting to feel the pressure from a lot of people within the party who are starting to shift over uh, to Terry Guo. And, you know, as some KMT members have said, you know, the winds have shifted in, in Guo's favor. So I suspect that what Ho is doing is making sure that the, you know, the, particularly within the deep blue camp, uh, that they know that he's not a secret pro-independent supporter, and they're concerned because he's, you know, his family has been in Taiwan for hundreds of years, and you know these are generally 49er families who came over uh, after the Chinese Civil War. So I think he was trying to play, you know, placate them. But he's got the edge in the polls. Uh, however, if the problem that Eric Ju has to face is that if he chooses Ho, Ho probably has a better chance of winning the election. However. If he chooses Ho, there's a possibility that Terry Guo will run as an independent, even though he says that he will support Ho uh, if he's chosen. Guo has a history of not exactly keeping all of his promises. So, you know, he runs a big risk of Guo running on his own if he chooses Ho. But if he chooses Guo, it, he's going to be harder to get elected because he's thin-skinned and prone to making controversial statements. So, I mean, Dimitri, Donovan best summed it up there, but, I mean, they're very different styles. Terry Guar has been out and about on the street, while Ho Yoi has just made a few passing comments in the new Taipei City Chamber. I, I agree. I agree that Terry Go has been running a successful campaign so far, and it looks like he's, he has learned a valuable lesson from his previous attempt four years ago. 
But we should remember that he's been working hard right now to reach out to his target audience, which is the KMT members who have paid their subscription. And he has been focusing on demonstrating his willingness to fight for the party's core values, the Republic of China, cross-trade peace and economic growth. Now, these values have been at the core of his campaign rallies in Kaohsiung, Pingtung, Taichung yesterday and then tonight in New Taipei. But let's be clear, KMT supporters want a candidate who can voice their concerns and frustrations about Taiwan's economy. And that's why he's turning his attention to the vaccine issue and President Tsai Ing-wen by demonstrating his ability to challenge the government about their management of the pandemic. He is gathering support from core supporters and drawing the line with the new Taipei mayor, Ho Yo Yi. Now, in this sense, the mayor is also following the same tactic because he's also challenging the procurement of BNT vaccines and confronting the ruling party on their shortcomings. So, however, the DPP is well prepared and government offices uh, have had immediately provided a series of documents to counter their claims. So, of course, Donovan, also this morning, the United Daily News ran a piece claiming that Terry Gore had had a meeting with Kerwin Jur about possibly joining up with him for some kind of cooperation if the KMT doesn't choose him. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I, I find that dubious. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not that they would meet up, but here's the thing. Both Kerr and Gore have very strong egos. And both of them would want to be at the top of the ticket. So, now, while it's possible that they could work out some agreement, the one thing that I think that, that either side could, could give is if either one of them became the top of the ticket, they could promise the other one to become the premier. That's really the only thing I could see either side accepting in, in that case. But Cohen has already said he's 99.99, and then he said, add two more nines to that, uh, going to run for president to the end. Um, so at this point, I would say the chances of a tie-up between the two of them are low, but they're still possible. And of course, Dimitri Kerwinger registered this Monday for the party's presidential primary. And whether they'll have a primary, we don't know, because we don't know if anyone else is running for president for the Taiwan People's Party. But of course, Kerr also said that he, he won't be considering a coalition with the KMT ahead of January's presidential and legislative elections because the DNA of the two parties simply doesn't match. Sure, but it's also too, it's premature to discuss this for two reasons. First, Cohen just still doesn't know who his challenger will be. So his strategy might change depending on whether he faces Terry Go or uh, Mayor Ho Yo Yi. So an alliance with the, the new Taipei mayor in particular may not be a priority uh, for some KMT heavyweights. And they might wait, want to wait further down the campaign before starting to negotiate with Cohen but Terry Go, on the other hand, seems to be more up-to-date with the numbers as he understands Ko's ability to appeal to younger people. So even though we are slowly becoming a super-aged society, the blue and white camps cannot succeed without the votes of young Taiwanese who are disappointed by inflation, low salaries and skyrocketing real estate prices. So that's the reason why a coalition, a coalition between these, uh, let's call them underdogs of Taiwan politics, could be a win-win situation if he managed to cut a deal with uh, uh, Terry Go. And of course, Donovan, the DNA of the KMT and the Taiwan People's Party doesn't match. 
Yes, they they don't. Um, I mean, if Kerr wants to consider a, he hasn't completely ruled out uh, working with the KMT, but he's kind of cast doubt on it. Um, so it sounds like they won't. But he base, his basic considerations are this. If he works with the KMT, and Eric Jew has flat out said this, it, the one big advantage that working with the KMT would provide is that they could actually work together on determining what districts, for example, the TPP will run a candidate and the KMT will back that candidate in, that, in those districts and in what districts the KMT will run and the TPP will back them. Now, what that would mean is that right now the TPP doesn't really have the ground game, the experience, or the resources to win in districts, uh, to run in, you know, to win legislative districts. It's, very, it's a re- really serious uphill battle, but if the KMT were to actually back their candidate and assist their candidate in, in multiple districts, that would actually give the TPP a chance to, to win more legislative seats. So that will be a big temptation for Cook. Now, I don't think that he's going to step down, that he would step down from the presidential race, but it's possible he could work with the KMT on legislative, you know, working in legislative districts. However, on the other hand, if he does tie himself with the KMT, that seriously dilutes his attempts to try and create a, a unique and separate brand image for the TPP, which finally, and rather belatedly, uh, they've been doing in the last few months, and he plans to really kick that off on May 20th. Um, and I believe that's probably when they'll also be release the white paper, you know, their policy white paper, um, and which will hopefully really define what the party is fully stands for, but listening to his speeches and reading about the things he's been staying, saying, they are actually starting to finally form as a party with a unique and clear identity of its own, which it hasn't really had up to this point. And the Taiwan People's Party will also be announcing its presidential candidate next week, likely on the same day as the KMT. Now, moving on now, on another construction site-related accident has left one person dead and ten others injured in Taichung on Wednesday of this week. The incident occurred in the city's Nantun district, where a suspension arm at a construction site collapsed about basically noontime on that day. Now, the incident occurred as a tower crane was being removed from the 31st building, which was under construction. Now, Video from surveillance camera shows a boom fell onto a nearby MRT track in front of the Fong Le Park station. An MRT train that had stopped at the station restarted, though, despite attempts by Metro staff and security guards to stop it, and then crashed into the crane boom. And there are now a multitude of questions as to how this happened. Now, the Ministry of Labour and the Taichung City Government have fined the operator of the construction site a combined total of 1.1 million NT so far. The Taichung District Prosecutor's Office has opened an investigation into the incident saying police are collecting evidence and also questioned several employees of the construction company on Thursday. Now the Control UN is also planning to investigate the case and it says it's going to look into whether the construction company, the metro operator or government regulators played any role in Wednesday's fatal Taichung MRT accident. Now the government watchdog also said that the investigation will focus on whether government regulators had exercised proper oversight over high wealth construction due to the company's record of multiple worksite safety incidents in recent years. So Donovan, of course, in Taichung, you're in Taichung, and this happened in Taichung. 
Yes, it did. Um, and in fact, I, I know the Canadian who was uh, on the train and who, who was injured. Um, yeah, this, uh, by the way, uh, just this morning it came out uh, that uh, they also found that uh, workers were still, after the, uh, after the con- all construction had been ordered stopped, they found some, some of the construction workers still working and they may be adding more fines of up to 270000 because they hadn't completely stopped work uh, on the site. Um, and if you want to know, another report this morning also found out that apparently the building's feng shui is still good. Now, this is obviously completely shocking here in Taichung. I mean, you know, I ride the MRT fairly regularly, and it's pretty shocking to see that footage. Um, but fundamentally, what it comes down to is they had sensors at the front of, of, the, of the train that if anything is on the tracks, it's supposed to stop. But the problem was the crane was too high. It was still low enough that the train could ram into it, but not low enough that the sensors on the train could detect it. So that was one safety oversight. Then they had another safety, major, two other major safety oversights, which Taipei MRT uh, actually has both of these, but the Taichung MRT doesn't. Now these are automated trains, but in Taipei, you can actually stop the trainer uh, from the station, or you can stop it in the train. Much easier. And, you know, just automatically, you just hit the button and bang, it's done. Now, these op- the problem and the scary part about this is that the, the train was in the station, and all they had to do was stop it from leaving the station. It was already stopped when the crane, you know, hit, when the, tra- when the crane hit. So all they needed to do was stop the train. The problem was is that the attendant noticed it about 13 seconds. The the attendant in the train had about 13 seconds to fish out the key and then open the, you know, the, the, the panel to be able to hit the brake. And of course, that's not enough time. So, I mean, going forward, at the very least, they're gonna have to make sure that the attendants already have the key in the hole. Um, or have that panel open, you know, going forward. I mean, this this is a kind of a disturbing oversight. Now, to reassure Taipei, uh, you know, Taipei residents, your MRTs up there are ha- have much easier access, and this probably would not have happened in Taipei. And of course, Dimitri, questions again about how construction sites are managed coming out here. Yeah, that's a good question because um, they were the the, the 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 site was really close to it's very close to the station, but the crane was operating kind of almost above the station or cl- close to the road, and, and there were cars and motorcycle down the road. Well, that's another uh, safety issue uh, in Taiwan. You're right to mention that there is a design issue with the uh, MRT system in Taichung. There is this metal bar on which there is a sensor and it's at a track level. So any kind of object obstructing the path of the train could not be detected. And that's why the train accelerated when it was leaving the station and then stopped several meters later when actually an part of the uh, the boon of the crane something actually touched the bar and that's when the train actually stopped um, another design issue is that there was no way to effectively stop the train unless you block the doors 
blocking the doors was the only way to stop the train, but it sounds like the operator, uh, the staff, there was an MRT staff uh, uh, on the train, they couldn't, they, or they didn't think of, they had 13 seconds, as you mentioned, but the doors closed and then um, the operator on the platform put his uh, hands up and the train just left. And that's another major concern. And the Taichung MRT will have to work much, much harder to regain the confidence of the, the Taichung people. I can also add something on the construction issue. Remember the last major uh, train accident um, on the East Coast that left scores dead? Um, that was also nearby construction related and that was a truck that was doing construction near the tracks slid down onto the tracks and then the tra train rammed into that so this is the second time fatalities have uh, resulted from local trains where the train operators didn't really do anything particularly wrong but nearby construction led to these train accidents so obviously the government seemed to need to be doing something with construction. Of course, the government did say it would deal with construction near TRA or Taiwan Railways Administration lines after the Hualien accident, Donovan, of course. Yeah, I, you know, I think now they need to consider extend, extending that to MRT lines. Now, I saw Taipei Mayor Zhang Wanan was speaking on this this morning on the news. He's reviewing all construction uh, along near you know near the all the type type a mrt lines uh which sounds like a very smart thing to do and of course taichung is already doing that as well and we have to take a short break now but we will return after these rather important commercials Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and lawmakers this week passed the Organic Act for the Ministry of the Environment. Now, the move paves the way for the Environmental Protection Administration to be upgraded to the status of a full government ministry, giving it a larger budget and a bigger workforce to better tackle climate change and other issues. Now, speaking to reporters after lawmakers voted to pass the Act, Environment Minister Zhang Zijing said he hopes the new ministry will be inaugurated on August the 22nd, the same day that the EPA was established in 1987. Now, lawmakers has also passed five other organic acts to establish four specialised sub-organisations within the ministry that will operate independently as Tier 3 Cabinet Agencies. Now, they include the Climate Change Agency, the Resources Recycling Agency, the Chemical Substance Management Agency, and the Environmental Management Agency. Now, passage of the Organic Act for the Ministry of the Environment also means the government will have to establish a National Environmental Research Institute, and the reorganisation will increase the number of staff to over 1,000, and means that the number of those employed to work on climate change issues will be raised from the current 26 to 124. Now, while all that sounds like a good move, not everyone is happy, as the citizen of the Earth Environmental Group was quick to claim that the upgrade will do little to address the government and environmental regulators' lack of authority to actually oversee some issues. Now, according to the group, those issues include the management of natural resources, the regulation of pollution and carbon emissions, and issues related to renewable energy. So, Dimitri, it sounds like we now have a... Well, very soon have a Ministry of the Environment. Well... I, many people believe that this is uh, a move. This move is long overdue and and will help Taiwan to ensure a sustainable future. So uh, 
some other uh, some some ONGs they're not the only one concerned about this uh, new uh, this new ministry there are also concerns about how the industrial sector will react to this change so some fear that environmental regulation might still be seen as a as an hindrance to economic growth nonetheless the, the changing mentality towards environmental issues in Taiwan is a positive sign and we we hope to see more efforts towards sustainable development it is crucial for Taiwan to balance economic growth with sustainable development and we hope that this new ministry will work towards achieving this balance and securing a brighter a brighter future for Taiwan but to me having all these sub agencies within the ministry that will just maybe cause more headaches which is one of the arguments by the environmental groups uh, well at first obviously there there will be uh, there will be many issues because whenever we face a, a major disaster or uh, some environmental issues they will just push responsibility saying that oh I'm not in charge I'm sorry you should ask the other department now they're going to play this game for some time but uh, I think now it depends on uh, how this new minister the environment minister and how he will manage this new ministry and 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 help the country achieve its goal of uh, um, lowering car- carbon emission by by 2050. So, Donovan, we're now going to soon have a Ministry of the Environment as opposed to an Environmental Protection Administration. Yeah, well, I mean, they, they've, they're going to quadruple the staff and then specifically the staff targeted with um, climate change uh, issues and, and achieving zero emissions by 2050. I believe it's about five times the number of staff. Now, the big question that comes to, comes to my mind, there are two. Uh, one is that, that some NGOs have pointed out that this doesn't include, this new um, environmental ministry doesn't include oversight over water and forestry issues, which still remain under different departments. And also, and this is my concern, is will they be effective? I mean, there's a poss- I mean, now that they've moved up to the ministerial level, that will presumably give them more clout. Um, but how much clout it will give them will depend on the laws that have been passed to give them enforcement power. And there's, there's so many questions still really left unanswered, I think, at this point. Um, and we also don't know who's going to staff it, how long it is, how long it's going to take for all these people to get up to speed. Um, so at this point, it could just be throwing more bureaucracy and creating more headaches. Or maybe over time, if they get the right personnel, particularly you know, a, a, you know, a, a capable minister in charge, and if the laws are clear and effective then it may actually be a very good thing. At this point, we really just don't know. Right now, it's kind of a wait and see. I don't expect to see much good come out of it for at least a year and a half, uh, because all the new personnel are going to be coming in. They're going to have to figure out all their internal power arrangements and all that kind of thing. So uh, it's going to be a while before we see much. But at some at some point, if they really are serious about hitting that 2050 target, they are going to have to have a ministry uh, like this.
And moving on from the environment and looking at airlines, those being, or that being rather, Starlux, which was in the news this week. And while the carrier, which was founded in May of 2018 and made its maiden flight to Macau in January of 2020, is often in the news for its much-touted service, which offers food from Michelin-starred restaurants, this week it found itself at the opposite and not-so-positive end of the headlines. It all began this past weekend, with flight delays due to bad weather and the mechanical issue at one of Starlux's aircraft left 308 passengers and two of Starlux's three A350 planes stranded overnight at Tokyo's Narita Airport. Now, Starlux was also forced to postpone flights on its went to Los Angeles route due to those delays. Now, the Civil Aeronautics Administration says its investigation into the delays and postponements well, it's still ongoing, basically, and they say they're going to release the findings of that next Thursday. Now, reports have also been saying that Starlux Airlines chairman, Jung Wei, who flew to Japan early Sunday to bring back some of the stranded passengers, may have failed to have the standard 10 hours rest time between flights. Now, Transport Minister Wang Guotsai says that is also still under investigation. And it didn't end there, as the Civil Aeronautics Administration also said that Starlux Airlines chairman, Jung Wei, could face a fine of 60,000 NT if he's found to have violated regulations for inviting a YouTube celebrity into the cockpit during a flight to Los Angeles. The incident occurred on April the 26th when Jung was captaining that flight. Now, the administration's Flight Standards Division is saying that Jung could have violated operating procedures as all flights are considered to be operational when cabin crew members are on board the aircraft. And there's also other issues, Dimitri, of course, coming from all this as in the Ministry of Transport is demanding to know if Starlux was expanding and planning to expand its routes at such a great rate, why wasn't there enough aircraft to do this? Well, the chairman has already apologised. He already flew to Japan. To, he did his best to help. His company offered to reimburse all the, the plane tickets. What we don't understand is why would the transport minister um, address and and, and and focus on that specific issues and like public shaming that this company for an issue that um, other airlines industry, the whole industry has been facing in recent months because of this uptick in uh, international travel. Now, the transport minister expressed concern that Starlux may have expanded too quickly and become too busy affecting its ability to manage unexpected events. We shouldn't, um, why don't we don't ex- usually don't expect a transportation minister to make this, this kind of uh, bold comments. Uh, Starlux is a private company and if uh, Starlux didn't comply comply with uh, local regulations, well, they should be fine. But there is no point in public shaming a business entrepreneur for uh, uh, issues that that actually couldn't control. Do you think, maybe, Dimitri, because there's been great publicity on this airline, that's why it's, it's come under the microscope so much on these incidents? Well, authorities have to be uh, demand- demanding with uh, the, these companies and uh, they sh- should set really high standards for uh, these transportation, for, for these major airlines. But they should also maybe try to understand or say solve, solve problems. If it's a, the, the problem is a, it's about regulations, well, change those regulations for all the airlines. But shaming one company for one problem, it's not helping the whole industry. So, Donovan, shaming Starlux for the sake of shaming Starlux? Um, well, this is kind of an unusual circumstance. 
Um, I, I agree that they don't really deserve to be shamed exactly, but I, I think this, this point was a little bit unclear from the intro, is that what happened was is, I mean, you had these two different flights that for a variety, through a whole series of, of incidents, from weather to when the, the airport in Japan closed, and the, the passengers ended up having to sleep in sleeping bags the entire night. They were kept on uh, the you know, on the backup plane that was supposed to, you know, for the first one that was stranded because of weather, they brought in a second aircraft, and there was the. But then they had maintenance problems. They kept the um, passengers on the plane for, if memory serves, it was seven hours without food and uh, drinks, and then. The air, they, they had to let them all off at the airport, but airport immigration had already closed, so they had to sleep in the airport for, uh, you know, overnight in sleeping bags. So, you know, that was, that was pretty bad. Now, to uh, John Gorway's uh, uh, credit, he caught a red-eye flight uh, on a Japanese airline and flew to um, Japan to personally apologize to the passengers. Um, and as Dimitri noted, you know, to compensate them for their, you know, for the, uh, uh, for, for this incident. And then he personally piloted one of these uh, planes back. Now he personally knows how to pilot all, all the different aircraft that his airline flies. Um, and his story is really quite interesting. Uh, John Guoway originally was, uh, is from the family that, that controls uh, Eva, Eva, Eva Airlines. He thought he was going to inherit leadership of the company. Uh, that didn't happen, so he started his own airline, which was all set to launch, and then the pandemic hit, like literally weeks. Um, you know, it was like the worst possible situation. So anyway, um, but uh, so he ended up personally flying the, the flight back himself, Again, as kind of a way to atone for what had happened, um, which is a good thing. But then, yeah, he let that influencer into the cockpit uh, when that was against regulations. And he'd flown the red eye and admitted that he hadn't slept the night before, which, again, was against regulations. So uh, now I, I was reading this morning. It was an international um, airlines publication, um, you know, kind of an industry publication on this. And the tone there was, they were both kind of, it was, the article basically came out, is this guy uh, a hero? And they gave a lot of reasons why he was, but then he also screwed up. So, you know, is, you know, is he a hero or is he, because, you know, how many CEOs of airlines can personally fly all their planes and would go to this length to apologize and compensate the customers? But on the other hand, he broke all these regulations. So they had kind of a mixed tone from that industry publication. And before we go this week, the Health Promotion Administration on Tuesday released the results of its 2022 survey of university student health, which found that likely, contrary to popular belief, university students are in fact drinking less alcohol now than they were two years ago. Now, according to the administration, the survey found that 38.45% of respondents said they had drunk alcohol in the past 30 days, and that was down from 44.2% in 2020. The survey also found that 67.76% had had a drink in the last year. 
Meanwhile, the proportion of students who said they had drunk excessively, which is defined as six or more drinks in one sitting or session, as it was known when I was young, in the last month, fell from 20% in 2020 to 14.39% last year. Now, broken down by gender, 16.42% of male respondents reportedly drinking excessively, while compared to 12.61% of female respondents who reported drinking excessively. And when asked when they drank alcohol, 72.79% of students said at large get-togethers with friends, 41.1% said at family gatherings, 23.46% said they were feeling happy, and 21.59% said they drank to reward themselves. So, Donovan, apparently students are drinking less nowadays. Yeah, that seems to be a trend, um, and not just in Taiwan. Uh, this has been this is going on in you know the U.S., the U.K., Canada. Uh, a lot of countries are seeing this exact trend. Um, just a few years ago, um, I, uh, I, I was uh, taking care of my grandparents, uh, and they're they're American. Um, and I went with my cousin, who was in his early twenties and college age student and went to a, a college party. Now, this is generally, you know, punks and alternative kinds of young people, of which I was but much, much older than them, obviously, but I was at one point. And I was a little bit shocked. And they, somebody brought in a fold-out table, folded out the table, and it, it turns out it was a beer pong table, like a you know, it had all the placements for the cups already marked out. And then they put the cups on the table, but not filled with beer, filled with water. And then they would, you know, do bounce the, the, the ping pong into the uh, cups. But then you would drink separately if you wanted to. There was, you were not actually obligated to do so. Uh, and the whole idea was is that they had this preset game. You didn't drink from the cup where the, the ping pong landed in. It was just water. And, of course, because that would be unsanitary. Now, obviously, you know, when I was young, sanitation, politeness, none of these things were part of the, you know, were part of the game. It was, you know, it was completely unsanitary. It was, you're all coerced to drink if you participated in the game. Um, but this is all very polite and organized and civilized. Um, so this seems to be where, where young people are moving the world over. Yeah, there might be several reasons for that change. Uh, I would maybe point to first, there is an increased awareness of the risk and negative consequences of alcohol consumption. So in recent years, uh, there has been a significant increase in public health campaigns and education efforts aimed at raising awareness of the negative, negative effects of excessive alcohol consumption. We've seen many ads in Taiwan, and maybe we can suppose and we can maybe argue that some of these ads uh, successfully change uh, consumers' mind. There is also, I guess, a change in the social norms and peer pressure. There is evidence to suggest that social norms around around alcohol consumptions have changed in recent years. And getting drunk in front of friends or in front of family and relatives, uh, it maybe doesn't feel, it doesn't feel the same way. But maybe there is also a third reason that maybe drinking alcohol is very expensive. And uh, students have uh, smaller budgets and they are maybe there's more concern and those students um, 
carefully manage their resources because uh, drinking um, beer, uh, foreign beer or alcohol, booze, it, it's too expensive for them. So the market is changing, uh, people getting more aware of uh, the negative consequences of alcohol, the perception about drinking has changed, but also students have maybe lower budgets. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Dimitri Buyas. Hey, it was great to be here. And from Taijong by Donovan Smith. And thanks for having me back. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast in your favourite podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.